Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Margot Livesey, author of the novel The Road from Belhaven. So far, I have had only one experience that I would regard as an experience of the supernatural, and it was long ago. But I keep hoping. We'll be back with Margot Livesey after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. 
Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers and become a supporter of first draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. And on to the show. My guest today is Margot Livesey, author of 10 novels, including Homework, Criminals, The Missing World, Eva Moves the Furniture, and The Boy in the Field. Her craft book is called The Hidden Machinery. Livesey is currently teaching at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and was born and raised in Scotland. Her new novel, The Road from Belhaven, tells the story of Lizzie Craig, who is growing up in Scotland, and discovers as a small child that she can see into the future. Her gift, however, is selective, and she has no control over when she sees things and what she sees. She's living a pastoral life on a farm with her grandparents because her parents died when she was young. She discovers she has an older sister who comes to live at the farm when Lizzie is still in school. Aside from her sister Kate, she has one friend named Hugh who comes to work on the farm in the summers and during the harvest. One summer, Hugh brings his friend Louie to work, and Lizzie develops feelings for him that lead her eventually to move to Glasgow and test the limits of who she is and what she wants. We began with Margot Livesey sharing what she was thinking about when she started The Road to Belhaven. I was at work on another novel. Um, I had a I was a few chapters in and engrossed and happy at the prospect of the open page. And then suddenly it was March 2020, and I realized I wasn't going to be able to go to Scotland for who knew how long. And that was profoundly upsetting to me. And after maybe a few days of realizing, yes, this pandemic thing really was happening, I um, decided to write a novel that would allow me to go to Scotland every day. And I had been thinking about the material of the road from Belhaven, and I just put put the other novel aside and started working on it. You wanted to go to Scotland in the end of the 19th century. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. why didn't I go back to the Scotland of, say, my childhood or my recent visit? I, that was because in, I don't know quite how to tell this story in a, in a reasonably succinct way, but I, um, after my father died, I believed I had no living relatives. And then a few years ago, I discovered through Ancestry.com that I did have living relatives. They just all happened to live near Brisbane in Australia. And I went to visit them in 2017. And while I was there, they several of the people told me stories about my great-grandmother, Elizabeth Lizzie Malcolm. 
And those stories stayed with me um, because uh, for a number of reasons. And um, when I decided to go to Scotland every day in my imagination, it was to Lizzie Malcolm's world that I decided I wanted to go. So what did they tell you about your real great grandmother and what was the difference between the two if there was one? There's a huge difference because they didn't tell me very much about my real great-grandmother. But the thing that resonated for me was that she had, um, as my mother had, um, a strong relationship with the supernatural. Um, She read tea leaves. She had what people referred to as healing hands. And um, she sometimes saw the future, not, I think, in a very reliable way. And all of this, I think, would have resonated with me anyway, but made a particularly profound impression because my one of the few things I knew about my mother, Eva, was that she, who died when I was two and a half, was that she had a relationship with the supernatural, um, which was, of course, the what I turned to when I wrote a novel called Eva Moves the Furniture. And suddenly I realized that my mother's gift, which I had seen as singular, was in fact um, a a family characteristic. Do you have it? Sadly, so far I have had only one experience that I would regard as an experience of the supernatural, and it was long ago. But I keep hoping Do you think there's something about writing that's supernatural? Oh, what a good question. I I absolutely do. Don't you? A hundred percent, because it feels channeled. Very much so. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, for instance, could never listen to music when I was writing because what I'm listening to is, is my characters and their intuitions and intimations. Is that the part that feels supernatural is like the sort of channeling of that? I, I think what feels, for me, what feels most supernatural is finding myself thinking or remembering or understanding things that I had no inkling were in my brain. Suddenly, uh, yeah, things that I thought were long forgotten, things that I thought were beyond my understanding, there they are. I love that the word natural is in there because sometimes you're castigated or in your book, you know, your character Lizzie Craig had, you know, like this site where she could see things happening in the future, but it wasn't something she could talk about because it wasn't within the realm of, of nature and things that were allowed, but yet supernatural in one way you could read it as like you're tuning into what's absolutely there. Yes, and I think that's that's part of the confusion, especially perhaps for a girl like Lizzie going to church every Sunday, sitting in Sunday school and hearing all these stories about magical events, events that don't make logical sense. And you're allowed to read about and talk about these things in church But outside of church, they're seen as something else, an aberration or a sign of madness or or something problematic. 
So after you had your grandmother in your head, how did you start? What was the most important element to weave into this story for you? I think I started in a rather in inchoate way. <laughs> I wish I could say that um, I wrote the novel in an orderly and um, you know streamlined fashion. Um, I, I think one thing was that I I didn't as as in Eva moves the furniture. And I regard the road from Belhaven as a kind of prequel, very distant prequel to Eva Moves the Furniture. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want the character in a way to be too interested in her own gift in the supernatural. I wanted it to be just one strand of her life, um, an important strand, but not the main strand, as it were. And I, I was also concerned to suggest, you know, what a, what a girl's life was like in that time and place. Um, something that I had thought about a lot when rereading Jane Eyre and writing my my attempt at an homage to Jane Eyre in, in The Flight of Gemma Hardy. I was very interested in the possibilities for women. One of the things that struck me so much when reading this book is it was a very, very quiet story, but it was a page turner. And I feel like sometimes in the publishing industry, they're looking for like all these fireworks to be happening and all this like major conflict. And this was just like, yeah, it was kind of like an old fashioned novel in a way. What, what do you think when I, when you hear me say that? Um, I think I'm thrilled. Uh, I also remember piercingly um, the hundreds of early rejections I got to, to stories um, saying this is too quiet. How, Quiet is nearly always a pejorative term. And um, often it's applied to things where, in fact, there's enormous tumult and tragedy going on, but it's sort of going on below the surface. I mean, I think of something like Paula Fox's desperate, I mean, desperate characters. Uh, I'll, have, I'll maybe have to check the, the title of that. Um, a novel in which not much seems to be happening, or these things that are happening are quite trivial, like an animal bite, but so much is happening beneath the surface. Yeah, I just feel like the loud person at the party isn't the one that I want to talk to. And, and I think, no, that is that is so well put. And I think there's a feeling sometimes now when I'm reaching for contemporary novels and uh, you know my reading time is pretty evenly divide, divided between the contemporary and making up for past omissions that uh, sort of the noise level has perhaps been ratcheted up and people feel they have to have oh she has to commit incest with both her brothers for a novel to sort of really reach people obviously you are just sticking to what feels authentic and real for you. I think that's part of it. And I would say, as with the boy in the field, that perhaps in a way I'm 
writing against the rising tide of incivility in our public lives, which I which I find very distressing. Um, so I think that's that's another part of it. And I was also, I think, pretty obviously in the road from Belhaven, very committed to that old-fashioned connection with character of trying to get my reader to be, care very much about Lizzie and her destiny. Her destiny doesn't seem especially in the beginning, that she's going to have a very big life, even geographically, because the book opens and she's working at her grandparents' farm. Her Both her parents have died, so her grandparents are raising her. And she goes to school, which is like a one-room schoolhouse, and she walks there and she has a few friends, but mostly she her best friend is a bird that was injured named Alice, and she's milking the cows and just doing farm things. And I would say pretty content with it. Um, in her early life, you know, she had the tragedy of her parents not being there. But I'm curious, you know, as you were revisiting Scotland, what sort of energized you about writing about her early farm life? Um. Thank you so much, Mitzi. I love this question. Um, Lizzie is 10 when the novel opens, and uh, I very much drew on my own life as a nine, 10 year old. I lived in a small village in the borders of Scotland, and I had really no friends, but on the outskirts of the village was a farm, a decrepit farm owned by a brother and sister. Chrissy and Selby, who were like characters in a William Trevor novel. They lived in a kind of gothic house cluttered with farm paraphernalia. And I went there every day to take care of the hens and to help with the cows. And I kept pigeons there. I didn't put, put that in the novel. Um, so it really was my world for four years. And I was, uh, in thinking about Lizzie, I was struck by the solace that one can find in, in animals, in one's connection to the natural world, and also by the limits of that solace, how one starts to crave bipeds, one starts to crave other humans. It seems like, in a way... Lizzie's second sight so she could she saw things like she saw an accident with her grandfather or she saw um an ailment in her sister's child that they were kind of like blips and she didn't really tell anyone except her sister we can talk about that and even then she was told like don't say anything um but maybe it was more dramatic because everything else in her life was generally pretty routine. Yes, I th I think I think that's true. I think um, you know the her pictures of the future are along a whole spectrum from the fairly trivial, like somebody wearing a new hat to church. Um, to the more momentous, um, Hugh, the farm boy, 
having an accident with the bees um, to um, seeing things that she doesn't know how to understand um, or only gradually knows how to understand. And one of the one of the things about her um, glimpses of the future is that they never include her. Um, so there's a certain level of fascination and also a certain level of frustration. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. What do you think, you know, imbuing a character with some kind of quality like this does for fiction? I Well, I hope that it enlarges the territory of the everyday. And I hope that it suggests the way... We're, I mean, we're simultaneously living, and I think many people I know feel this acutely at the moment, we're living in the grip of history of this particular time and place. And yet there's a kind of a core inside us, um, something intimate, perhaps almost spiritual, that is is existing outside that outside the time and place or or escapes the claims of the time and place. I don't know quite how to say it. And I hope that Lizzie speaks to speaks to that, um, speaks to both the constraints but the inner freedoms. I have a similar question about loss in fiction because she didn't have her parents, so she grew up with her grandparents, which is always sort of interesting to have a generation removed, to have a generation missing. And not only does she not have her parents, but she doesn't really remember them because she was so young when they died. Um, Curious. Yes. And I mean, that reflects, I think, something of my own childhood of growing up without a mother. My stepmother was so much older and so remote that she didn't really seem like a parent exactly. Um, and Lizzie's grandparents are much are much nicer than um, my father and stepmother ever were. But um, I think there's a way in which um, you know her her photo, her parents almost don't come alive for her until she discovers this mysterious thing. Um, namely attraction, sexual attraction, romantic attraction. And suddenly this thing that's been hidden all along 
she understands is is governing all these choices in people's lives and indeed is responsible for her existence. She finds out that she has a sister. You know, she grew up until she was about 10 or 11 or 12 thinking this is her life, like her and her grandparents. And it turns out she has a sister that went to the other grandparents when the parents died. And then her grandmother, her other grandmother died and the grandfather had to, couldn't take care of Kate, the sister anymore. So the sister came. So it's so, it seems like it'd be so earth shattering to discover that you had this sibling that maybe shares some of your experience, but yet doesn't because they grew up so differently. Yes, um, I wanted it to be earth-shattering, and I wanted Lizzie to invest her sister with ideas she got from the, the books she's reading. Um, many of the books contain siblings, and those siblings often have in, intense and complicated connections. And, of course, Kate is, Kate is not contained by Lizzie's imagination, or Lizzie's desires. She's very much her own person. She's urban. She's strong-willed. She's already in a romantic relationship, which is a big part of her life. And she sees Lizzie as much more of a child um, rather than rather than an equal, at least to start with. Although she's urban, she's sort of actually takes the more traditional route that you think is Lizzie's destiny, meaning that her boyfriend and eventually her husband, Callum, comes and they farm and they work the land and she has children and they are just living that rural life that I think the grandparents expected of Lizzie. And with that life comes... The, the riches, even though there aren't any, of taking over the farm and taking over that land, which Lizzie always thought would be her. And so that kind of throws her. Yeah, I mean, she is so thrilled to have a sister that she doesn't focus on the essential fact that Kate is the elder sister um, and therefore by virtue of both age and her relationship with Callum, the heir apparent to, to Belhaven, to Lizzie's home. And that's a very piercing moment, this place where she knows, you know, every, every pine tree and every, every stone wall and every cow and gate, um, suddenly belonging to someone else. Did you know from the beginning, how does your process happen for like major plot points? I had some major plot points and because some of them happen later in the book, I, I don't think I can talk about them in a very interesting way, but there was an additional sto story I had heard in Australia that very much governed my writing of the novel. But I was actually writing along. Um, I had um, Hugh in the novel, um, the, the farm boy. And then when Hugh left, I, I sort of hit, I hit a wall. I didn't know what to do next. Um, I, I felt like the novel needed new energy. 
And I wanted, I tried to think where that could come from in a way that was was really organic to the book and 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 interesting. And I, at that time, I read a wonderful biography by Diane Johnson. I think it's called the first Mrs. Meredith. Well, she talked about the way in Victorian times, children were quite commonly given away um, or passed from one family member to another, that it was not at all unusual. Um, you know, you gave, you had an extra child, you gave it to an aunt or you gave it to a grandparent. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And um, Kate came out of my musings about about that and, of course, allowed me to introduce this whole other strand of the plot. So after Kate comes, Lizzie, it just becomes like, in a way, this home that she loves becomes a little bit claustrophobic, but also, as you mentioned, she meets this man she falls for who's a little bit of a rogue and he lives in Glasgow and really wants her to come and is promising marriage over time, but he's an apprentice for a tailor and doesn't want to get married until he's, you know, got all the training and can afford to be married and have children. But he is an additional drop, maybe the main draw, but she also realizes she's not going to have the farm. So Lizzie gets to experience like the city life, which I mean, she's been poor her whole life. Just because they have a farm and land does not mean they're wealthy. So she goes to the city, and that has a different kind of lesson for her. Yes, it, it, there are all kinds of lessons about being in Glasgow. There's living in the house of relatively wealthy or comfortably off people. They seem wealthy to her. Um there is how those people, the Phelpses, treat their daughters, very different from the way Lizzie has grown up. There is the company of the other people working in the house, which who become a kind of an education and a, a kind of family in a way. Um, and there is the city itself with its many surprises and its liveliness and um, so many different possibilities and things going on. And many of the things cost money, but not everything costs money. Um, so it, when Lizzie is in the city... I think she's a, I, I can't tell, and maybe you can tell me if she's fully gullible or if she just wants something with Lewis so badly, because I think he does love her, but he's not the committing type. And she gets into some sticky situations with him and being in the city that are just so unfamiliar to her and pretty unacceptable for her farm life and the and the values around the farm just curious about this twist for her as a as a human being she is very innocent in in certain ways as i think most children growing up in, in Scotland at that time would have been, and most children were many decades later, and people behaved as if sex and passion did not exist. And Lizzie, had, she doesn't really, 
know enough people to uh, understand how someone might be unreliable in crucial ways or how might talk about the future very beguilingly, but perhaps not intending to implement it um, in, in quite the way she understands. And I did, I mean, one of the things I struggled with was to make Louis seem seem somewhat worthy of her affections, maybe not fully worthy, but he doesn't he doesn't mean to be a bad person. Um, and uh, like Lizzie, he has his secret sorrows, um, the loss of his father um, at a when he was um, unlike Lizzie, he's lost his father at a time when he had a very strong connection with his father. So I hope that he comes across as um, not 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 meaning to wound her, even as they have very different ideas about what the future is and when the future is going to happen. I know you've written so many novels. When you finished this one, did you learn anything new about writing? I think I relearned the importance of writing better sentences and the importance of a kind of rhythm to one's prose. Um, Virginia Woolf talks about when she's when she's writing to the lighthouse, she make has this diary entry of describing how she's walking around Bloomsbury Square and she says the most important thing in in, in in writing is is rhythm and once you find the rhythm then you can write anything I mean I think that's a little bit optimistic but there is something about the rhythm of the prose and how that can carry the reader along that is that is so crucial and uh, I think also that sense of how important it is to have a a kind of dark river running beneath the surface events, this sense that there is something that really matters and that's really at stake is is very important to the reader. Is that difficult to include on the subtextual level? Like, do you find that a challenging part of craft? I find it a very challenging part of craft because I think, you know, the nature of our work is that we work very close up. We're peering at our sentences and our semicolons. And to understand the rhythm of what you've written, you have to be able to step back and read it page after page in the way you hope a reader will. And that stepping back that looking at the work with fresh eyes is is quite a complicated thing to do. I mean, and I think like most writers, I rely on help from my friends to do that. Well, you're in Iowa right now working with students who you worked with in the fall. You're leading a class on revision. And so you saw the first iterations of these stories, and now you're talking about revision. What advice are you really giving them or what are you seeing as common for the process? I think what I tried to emphasize when we met and discussed their stories in October 
was thinking about the larger questions, the, the nature of the main character, their motivation, their concerns, uh, the occasion of the story, what was propelling events, uh, the world of the story. And now reading their revisions, I'm at liberty to think more about the flow of the sentences and the paragraphs, the way they're using metaphors, um, the, the kind of dialogue they're giving their characters, the uh, how they're, on the one hand, creating emotion on the page, and on the other hand, creating emotion in the reader. You have an epigraph here that says, by night and day, we'll sport and we'll play, and delight as the dawn dances over the bay. Sleep blows the breath of the morning away, and we follow the heron home. And it's from Follow the Heron Home by Corrine Polwart. Tell me about that. Um, Corrine Polwart is a wonderful Scottish singer. Um, happily, she's becoming increasingly well-known. And I came to know the song through my beloved niece, Kirsty Shorter, to whom the novel is dedicated and who very sadly died last January um, at the much too young age of 32. When you pick an epigraph, is it important for it to relate to something in the book that's sort of obvious to the reader or is it more for you? I think... Um, in this case, both things. It was Kirsty's favorite song and the idea of following the heron home and by night and by day we'll sport and we'll play. I, all of that resonated for me with the journey of the road from Belhaven. Yeah, I, I love that follow the heron home. It's really beautiful. And it's, you know, Lizzie had this bird that was her best friend in the very beginning. But also I think when I think about that epigraph, I think Lizzie's journey throughout the book was to find home. It's almost like the antithesis in a way of the title. The road from Belhaven is like her leaving, but it's also this journey to find what home means, both the physical home and home in her heart, like a settled feeling. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And, you know, I feel sometimes the word home, that it's easy for us to over, to overuse it. And yet, of course, we overuse it because it's of such importance to, to everybody. I mean, who, do, who does not want a home in the world, a sense of having a home in the world? And so in, somehow Lizzie has to give up on the place she thought of as home. She has to find a way to leave it and she has to find a way to replace it. Is there anything else about the novel that we didn't talk about that you want to? I, th I think the, the, one, the one thing that has been implicit in our conversation, but maybe I haven't made explicit, was how much I like the sense of Lizzie being on a journey and how I 
worked hard at the different locations um, and the kind of atmosphere, if you will, of the different locations, which is not necessarily constant. Um, the farm seems not idyllic, but incredibly pleasant when she's a child, but then that becomes more complicated when she's a teenager. Glasgow seems thrilling when her life there is stable, but when uncertainty enters her life, it also seems potentially frightening and hostile. And she continues her journey um, to other places that we also become attached. She and we, I hope, become attached to. I love where she ended up. I loved the situation. I loved the acceptance, like it was a certain acceptance she never would have found or could have found had she gone back to the farm from her sister, from the grandparents that raised her. But she found her home, both physically, geographically, and with the people she ended up with. No, thank you for saying that. And I think one of the books I had in mind as a very shadowy godparent for my for my novel, a very different, very different book, is um, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, um, which I reread while writing The Road from Belhaven. And of course, what's similar about Tess and Lizzie is um, the agricultural life, the farming life, the life of the land. And um, and then, of course, there are other similarities. Um, but but I Tess is a tr- very much a tragedy, and I was trying to write something that was not a tragedy. After I read your book, I was longing for another quiet book. Like I listened to Brooklyn, which I had read a while ago, and I feel like there's something. I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know if it's in your oral history. I don't know if it's in the sense of community that the Scottish, Irish, English storytelling, it's so captivating. And there's there's so much depth in all of that, including your book about the psychology of being human. I don't know why. Do you? Well, I do think that in cities, um, a sense of community is often... is often quite hard to find, or it's, or it's made in other ways, and maybe it's made more out of liking and convenience. And when you live in a more rural place, you sort of have to make do with your neighbors. <laughs> you have to make alliances with them, and you can't change them for nicer, more agreeable people. Um, and I think there's something very, very. I mean, in Brooklyn, there's such a strong sense of that community back in Ireland that is watching over our heroine, even while she thinks she's escaped it. And yeah, I think that's a very interesting part of the Scottish and the Irish landscape, that there are still many people living in smaller communities with that sense of history. Yeah, I think there's just such a keen understanding of like human psychology. Yeah, and and the way in which you know, on the one hand, almost everyone has a secret sorrow and almost almost everyone is is sort of more than one person is capable of kindness and and cruelty or kindness and indifference. 
We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I can, and um, it's, uh, I'd have to say, perhaps shamefully obvious, it's the opening chapter of Jane Eyre. And I'll just read the first few paragraphs. Chapter one. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering indeed in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning. But since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so sombre and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John and Georgiana Reed. The said Eliza, John and Georgiana were now clustered round their mama, mama in the drawing room. She lay reclined on a sofa by the fireside and with her darlings about her, for the time neither quarrelling nor crying, looked perfectly happy. Me, she had dispensed from joining the group, saying she regretted to be under the necessity of keeping me at a distance, but that until she heard from Bessie and could discover by her own observation that I was endeavouring in good earnest to acquire a more sociable and childlike disposition, a more attractive and sprightly manner, something lighter, franker, more natural as it were, she really must exclude me from privileges intended only for contented, happy little children. Why did you choose that? I think because it speaks so much to my sense of the passionate life of, of a child, how children have so many of the emotions of adults, but not necessarily the vocabulary to express them or the freedom to act upon them. And um, I love that, that sense of the, of the domestic life, of the, the, the cold outside, the warm inside. But even in the warm inside, you can find yourself excluded. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like. I'm going to read the opening paragraph of The Road from Belhaven. And I'll say, maybe I'll say afterwards why this was hard for me to write. The summer she was 10, she learned not to speak of it. She told the hens, she told the cows, she told the pond at the bottom of the field and the ducks who swam there and her pet jackdaw, Alice. But she did not tell her grandparents, Rab and Flora, or Hugh, the farm boy, or Nellie, who had helped in the house when she, Lizzie, was learning to walk and whom they still saw every week at the kirk. 
The first picture came on a drich November day. Her grandmother was in the dairy skimming milk, her grandfather in the fields digging potatoes. She was beneath the kitchen table making scones for her doll. She must have been three or four when the flagstone floor and her bowl and spoon disappeared. Instead, she was watching her grandfather, his shirt sleeves rolled up, scything hay in the meadow by the river. He was working his way along the bank, cutting wide swathes. One moment the hay was upright, the next fallen. At the end of the row, he stopped to sharpen the scythe. She could see his shirt clinging to his back as he ran the whetstone back and forth. He was starting on the next row when the blade bit his calf. She was still exclaiming no, scrambling from beneath the table when the kitchen door opened and her grandfather stepped into the room. So why was that difficult? I think... The beginnings of novels are always hard because one feels so much pressure to make the reader want to cross the threshold. But I was trying to create an atmosphere that was maybe slightly echoing fairy tales and folklore, but was also very much rooted in physical reality and hard work. So the the flagstone floor, but the repetition of her not telling not telling anyone, telling the pond and the ducks and Alice. Where do you write? I write uh, wherever I find myself. Um, but my two favorite places are um, the kitchen table in my flat in London. Um, which looks out over a railway embankment, and uh, my writing room in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Mostly I read. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show almost everything I've written longer than a postcard to Andrea Barrett, the wonderful writer of novels and collections of stories. She has a, a newish collection of stories called Natural History, which is just marvelous. And she's currently finishing up a book of essays about writing. And I am profoundly fortunate to have her as a first reader. She has an amazing brain and uh, she is fearless in telling me over and over again when something isn't working. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, how does anyone deal with rejection? Um, I complain, I read, I, I try again. I think of, of Beckett, the famous Beckett quote, fail again, fail better. Um, I think one of the things that distinguishes writers who keep writing um, from people who for one reason or another, stop writing is, is a certain stubbornness. Um, not necessarily talent so much, but a, a, this persistence that makes us feel we just have to keep trying to do this difficult thing. And what is your favorite word? At the moment, my favorite word is taxi. Do you have a writing tip you could share? 
I think the thing that I've been working at hardest recently and in the novel I'm currently trying to write is on the one hand moving the abstract or the vague to the specific or precise and on the other finding a, a language to convey the emotions of my main characters and how to a way to dramatize those emotions that feels appropriate to them and to the world of the novel. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much, Mitzi. You asked the best questions. This is my first interview about the road from Bellhaven, and I'm just so grateful to you that it's with you because you read the book, read the book so carefully and empathetically and ask such insightful questions, and I'm most grateful to you. If you like today's show with Margot Livesey, author of the novel The Road from Bellhaven, check out my first interview with Livesey on her novel The Boy in the Field. We talked about the tension between self and family, the companionship of writing, and subtext. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Deborah Spark, and Kylie Reed. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.